As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and part one of our 2022-23 Premier League preview. The TSS gang will be casting our collective eye on every single Premier League team over the next couple of eps. That's the top four chances, the middle of the pack also rants, the newly promoted hopefuls and the relegation contenders. Those last two categories are one and the same, by the way. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who is secretly sad he doesn't get to tell us why Burnley are interesting this year, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. <laughs> I am, although Everton just keeps signing Burnley players. So it sort of feels like since I'm talking about Everton, I'm de facto talking about Burnley. Ah, they're Burnley by osmosis. I like that. Exactly. Um, I do remember last year's preview, Tate, and uh, I, I said something <laughs> facetious like Burnley are boring and you put me straight for about 10 minutes. So... Uh, that's, that's, yeah, that I mean, I think that. first of listeners. all, first I cannot of all, believe I, that happened. I feel like I feel like this is Ryan waiting a year to like uh, to get some feelings out there, and yeah, maybe it turns out I wasn't fully correct about Burnley being good last season. I, I think I'm willing to admit that now. You made some good points. It was good. It was a good conversation, Tate. <laughs> I don't I need you. Sure. Don't patronize me. I don't need your sympathy. <laughs> What I remember about last year's previews are Ryan just going through every team and calling every uh, city that they play in a poophole and (laughs) getting abuse from our listeners because of it. Burnley were top of that list, I think. All the ones that don't play in London. Anyway, also here a man, you just heard his voice. He's anxiously waiting to see where his boy Billy Gilmore will play this season. Graham Ruffin, hello. At least it can't be Norwich City. It can't be, but who will... It might be Everton, though, (laughs) which is not much better. (laughs) We shall see. Rounding out our pack, a man who later in this episode will get the honour of discussing America's team, Leeds United, Joe Lowry. Say can you see Jesse Marsh keeping Leeds up. I was trying to do a national anthem there, it didn't work. Ryan, I like how quickly all this went off the rails. As soon as you introduced Taylor and reminded us all of what he said about Burnley last year, we all jumped in, one, without you introducing us, and two, it just turned into to pure and utter chaos. I am excited, and Taylor, you're the one who put the, the list together. So thank you for giving me America's team. I saw my name next to Leeds in the little the assignment sheet we had, and uh, I, I was truly grateful. And I, I'll express that gratitude now by saying thank you. 
You're welcome. <laughs> Although Fulham fans might be a little bit displeased with you to hear that uh, Leeds is nah. now America's team. It's 2022. Things have changed. Fulham is still it's a new world. It, it you know near and dear to a lot of USMNT fans' hearts, but it it's, it, it is a new world, Graham. You're I right. Think, do they still have the Brian McBride bar at the stadium? They might do. I'll have to check that out. Um, and I'll try again with the national anthem thing. <clears throat> Joe, say, can you oh see boy. Jesse oh Marsh keeping leads up? We'll find out later. We will find <laughs> oh out later. Um, we're going to be talking, the first part of this uh, This preview is this episode. We're going to talk about Arsenal through leads alphabetically. Controversially, though, listener, we had a big discussion about whether Arsenal should be first in the Premier League rankings by alphabetized uh, order. AFC Bournemouth, Taylor, we mm-hmm. had a debate whether they should actually be top because their name is AFC Bournemouth. I need you all to know that uh, uh, late former co-host Daryl Grove and I had a like a somewhat heated exchange about this <laughs> on air and a heated exchange about it off air because I was like, hey, man, everybody lists AFC Bournemouth first. He was fully Arsenal is first. Bournemouth is later on. Uh, so th- that is where it was a little bit of like PTSD uh, bringing that one back up with you all. But I think it ended up being three votes to one in favor of starting with Arsenal, Ryan being the lone dissenter. But that felt like Ryan was... Uh, uh, in my camp, on the same side as me. Yeah, I was just being edgy. That's all it was. That's <laughs> all it was. All right, let's get cracking on with it. This is the 31st Premier League season kicking off this weekend. 31 years, Taylor, since Rupert Murdoch invented soccer in 1992 with the advent of the Premier League. Wonderful stuff. That was actually the Seattle Sounders who did that, Ryan. I think you oh. are a little confused about that, but whatever. Thank you. Let me alter the Wikipedia page. Uh, to. Uh, yep. Uh, Joe. Uh, Bournemouth, Fulham and 90s throwback Nottingham Forest joining the pack this year in the top flight. Gents, we're going to go through. Each of us has been assigned a, a few teams to go through. We're going to start off as we established with Arsenal. Graham Rudvan is going to talk us through Arsenal. And gents, just so you know, I'm going to be timing you. I'm going to give you five minutes to talk about each of your teams. Oh, no. So, Graham, to talk about Arsenal, who were fifth last year, spent a bit of money on new names this summer. Are you going to tell us about trusting the process with Mikel Arteta? You have five minutes. I might now. I'm a little bit more convinced by Arsenal than I was 12 months ago, even though last season, I think it's fair to say, ended in disappointment for Arsenal. There's no denying they made progress. There were step forward, steps forward, but having occupied a place in, in the top four with just a few weeks of the season left, it was a big blow that they ultimately fell out of that top four and finished fifth. And even worse, it was the fact that it was Spurs who pipped them to that, that fourth place and Champions League qualification. But the positives were... Mikel Arteta found a starting lineup that really worked for Arsenal, and he has been—he's uh, been able to keep that together over over the summer. Had he been able to keep that together and on the pitch all for all of last season, it's likely that Arsenal would have kept their place in the top four. However, a lack of depth was a problem. They allowed Aubameyang to leave in January and never replaced him. That that might have been a mistake in hindsight. They've lost another striker this summer, so Alexander Lacazette has has left the club as a, as a free agent. He is though pretty much the only player of any note to have left Arsenal. This summer, the past few transfer windows have been about getting rid of Deadwood, but now it's about building the squad up again. And and so, as I say, the majority of the squad has been kept together. One change that's happened over the summer with the the current squad is that Arsenal have a new captain after the the exit of Aubameyang in January, and that captain is Martin Odegaard, who might not strike you as a as a natural leader, certainly not in the traditional English blood and thunder way, but I think it says a lot about just how important he is to Arsenal right now that he has been made captain. Let's talk about Arsenal's transfer activity, and there's only one place to start in that regard, and that is 
Gabriel Jesus. And Arsenal clearly needed a, a new forward. As I say, Aubameyang's gone, Lacazette left at the end of last season. And Jesus was the guy Arteta wanted from very early on. And his form in pre-season suggests Arteta knows exactly how to get the best out of him. Yes, it's only pre-season, but he's been incredible. He scored seven goals in four games, including a hat-trick in his first match at the Emirates. On top of that, I think he's got a really good stylistic fit for Arsenal. Arteta is doing this, this thing where he's allowing him to drift out wide and then burst into central areas. And that's making Arsenal a very explosive team in the final third. And I can't wait to see how Jesus does in the season itself because there's a sense that he could become a bit of a superstar in this team. This team that's now built around him and that was never the case at Manchester City. Um, not content with raiding Man City for just one player, Arsenal have also signed Alexander Zinchenko. I am personally super interested to see how Arteta uses Zinchenko. So at, at City he was predominantly used as a left-back. And that could be where he gets a lot of minutes, given that Kieran Tierney's legs are made of glass and he spends a lot of time injured. However, Arteta has spoken about using Zinchenko as a midfielder, and this is where City has. Uh, this is where he played when City signed him, and this is where he's played for the Ukrainian national team, where he plays predominantly as a as a playmaker. So that's going to be interesting to see if Arsenal use him in that position. But either way. Arsenal needed depth after last season, so they went and signed one of the best depth players in the Premier League. Fabio Vieira has, has joined from Porto as well. I'm not entirely sure what to expect of him, whether he will break into that midfield unit. But again, that, that word, to go back to that word, depth. Arsenal needed options, and Vieira is another good one. And then finally, I'm going to highlight a player who isn't a new signing, but kind of feels like one. So William Saliba has been at Arsenal since 2019, but has been out on loan at Nice and in Marseille. He was very good at on loan at Marseille last season. He's forced his way into the French national team. It basically got to the point where Arsenal simply couldn't overlook him any longer. And he's back at Arsenal now. He's looked good in pre-season. He's played in the back three alongside Ben White and, and Gabriel Magalhaes. And, and I still think he's going to be second choice behind those two, but it, it kind of feels like another option for Arsenal. And as I say, that has been a, a big focus of their summer. My very specific prediction con concerns Arsenal's attack, though. That's where I think the biggest difference will be this season. And that's largely down to the addition of Jesus. So my VSP is that Gabriel Jesus and Bakayo Saka will combine for more Premier League goals than any other two players besides Kane and Son, who are pretty much untouchable in that regard. So they will they will be second in that list. I think there's been real signs of a partnership between them in pre-season, and I very much like what I see. So I think they're going to be very successful for Arsenal this season. Wow, good stuff. And under five minutes, Graham, congratulations. I, like 100% of Fantasy League players, have put Gabriel Jesus in my team, yeah. and Saka as well. And we're in a Fantasy League together, Graham, so be prepared for that. So um, does that have enough firepower for, for top four potential, do you think? Yes, potentially. I think it does when you factor in Gabriel Martinelli as well, and as I say, Fabio Vieira, who's who's Vieira, sorry, who's not a, you know, he's not an attacker as such, but he is an attack-minded midfielder. And then Odegaard, Nicolas Pepe is still kicking around as as Arsenal's uh, record signing. I don't I don't really know what the plan is for him, but I guess more options the better. So yeah, I very much like that that Arsenal attack. I I agree. I don't know if maybe you were suggesting this, but I, I, if you were, I would agree that they could maybe do with another depth number nine option, given that they've lost Aubameyang and Lacazette in the last six months. But besides that, I think they're they're pretty well stocked. Good stuff. All right. Uh, unless there's anyone who wants to jump in and talk about Arsenal, should we talk about Aston Villa, Joe Lowry? 14th last year. Um, what do you make of Aston Villa's chances this season? I think this is always the trap. of Maybe, maybe we can give this a collective name and call it the Taylor Rockwell Burnley trap. But hey. it's the trap of of previewing a team be good. And, and thinking they're going to be good. Exactly. And Aston Villa, I, 
I'm very wary of falling into this trap. But like you talked about with Arsenal, Graham. All I hear I is think... slander. I want this on the record. This <laughs> Taylor, is you should be honored. at this point. You should be I mean, honored, libel and Taylor. slander. Come That's on. I, <laughs> I think there's a lot to like about Aston Villa right now, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So, Ryan, you mentioned last season they finished 14th. And one of the reasons why I'm optimistic-ish about this team this year is because they were squarely mid-table in a lot of, of key metrics. You look at goal difference, you look at expected goals differential. They were probably a little better than 14th last season, just like some other teams were worse than they finished and better than they finished. That's just how this goes over a relatively small sample size, even one as, as small as or, or as large, theoretically, as an entire season. It's still not that much time. It was their first season without Jack Grealish last year. In quite some time, certainly. Steven Gerrard joined midway through the season, coming over from Rangers and taking over for Dean Smith. And that leads into some of the key things to know about this team. If you're going to sit down and watch an Aston Villa game this weekend, or, or really going forward, there's a couple different things you could see in terms of a shape at the very least. So one of those shapes is a 4-2-3-1 with narrow attackers that are, are much more of, a, of number 10s than they are wingers. right? And that's a spot where we normally see Felipe Coutinho playing. We might see Emi Buendia, or, or there's other options that Aston Villa have in that two-line underneath the single striker. That's one option. The other option is a 4-4-2 diamond. And that's very much in play as well. We saw that some last season. It's two forwards up front, maybe Watkins and Danny Ings, Ollie Watkins and Danny Ings, and maybe it's Coutinho behind them or someone else has number 10 behind them. We could see that. Gerard is, and I think his team last year was a little more patient on the ball than Dean Smith, trying to get those number 10's touches. They can press. They're not fully committed to pressing. They're still going to try to find their way, I think, tactically under Steven Gerrard this season, but those are a couple of shapes at the very least to look out for. They're not going to dominate the ball. They're probably not going to dominate games either. But there is quality in terms of key players in this team. I mentioned a few of them already. Ollie Watkins is one of them. He was their top scorer last year with 11 goals. Felipe Coutinho was with the club for the second half of last season on loan, is now with them permanently. Emi Martinez is a goalkeeper, their goalkeeper, um, Argentinian national team player. He really struggled last year, and this kind of went under the radar, but he was one of the worst shot-stopping goalkeepers in the entire league when you go through and look back at some of his numbers and some of his moments. He struggled, and, and a better year from Martinez, I think, could take this team even on on his own, from 14th in the table up to much closer to 10th. So he's a key player to watch, as is Jacob Ramsey. He's a younger player, 21 years old, English. Central midfielder had six goals last season, which is a really good output from, from a player of his profile. He gets forward. He's good at progressing the ball, can handle pressure, pretty well-rounded player, can still improve his passing game. That's, that's an interesting thing to watch this year. In terms of transfer activity, I already mentioned Coutinho and getting him on a permanent deal. They got him in for $22 million. Diego Carlos in from Sevilla. We talked about him before, I think, earlier in the summer. $34 million uh, in, in terms of a transfer fee. 29-year-old center back from Sevilla, Brazilian. He's not a particularly adventurous passer, but can cover ground. He's aggressive defensively. He can do things on the ball. And I think Diego Carlos and, and, and Tyrone Mings is a pretty formidable center back pairing in the back. I think they can do a lot of damage and, and make life difficult for opposing attackers. Bubakar Kamara is another player they brought in on a free from Marseille. He's a young French central defensive midfielder. He's a ball winner. He can pass a little bit too. I really like the idea of Kamara and Ramsey playing not necessarily next to each other, although we may see some of that, but maybe with Kamara as a six and Ramsey to the left of him as a number eight. You also have John McGinn in that midfield. There's a, a lot of quality in those spaces. They lost Matt Target, and that's really the only important outgoing player that, that is gone from this team, but they signed Lucas Dinier last year, so left back is not really a problem for this group. In terms of my very specific prediction, uh, I'm focusing on two players that I've already mentioned, Kamara and Ramsey. I think they're going to be the lifeblood in this team, uh, of this team in so many different ways. They're both young. They're both mobile. I think they're going to play at least 2,500 minutes together in this midfield. I think they're ready to make an impact. Kamara, I think, could be a standout player. 
doing just the dirty work defensively, and that doesn't always get you a ton of praise and a ton of glamour, but I think he could transition pretty effectively into the Premier League. So my prediction for this team, I guess maybe a sub-prediction is, I think they might finish higher than 14th this year, but I I certainly think that Kamara and Jacob Ramsey are going to play at least 2,500 minutes together on the field in the league for Aston Villa this year. Very nice, Joseph. It's it's difficult to predict a, a league place for a team like Aston Villa, I think, Joe, because there's this range in the Premier League between about 9th and 15th where any team could be in any of those yep. spots, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. And it, it really wouldn't shock me if Aston Villa ends up anywhere in that range. I, I think they are still a season or two away from... Europa League or maybe even Europa Conference League play any sort of European competition, but they should be squarely involved in, they should not be in the relegation race, I'll put it that way. They should be significantly higher up than that in the table this year. Good stuff. All right, I'm going to move us on to discuss AFC Bournemouth, who should have been first in this podcast. I would like to make that point (laughs) once again, but whatever. Uh, The team with the crest that looks the most like an 80s shampoo bottle, we can all agree on that. They are back, baby. A little bit of history on them. They were in the fourth tier, League Two, in 2008. And you may recall they got all the way to the Premier League for the first time in 2015. How did they manage that? Was it a fairy tale of grit? Kind of. It was also a Russian businessman named Maxim Denim who pumped a lot of money in there. Uh, The key to know about Maxim Denim, though, is he is a UK citizen. He is not an oligarch. He is not subject or has not been subject to any sanctions. So an American named Todd has not taken his club off of him. Um, They spent five seasons, did Bournemouth, in the top flight. They dropped down in 2020. They are now back with Scotty Parker at the helm. They got automatic promotion with Fulham last season. By the way, uh, Graham, Kitwatch, uh, black and red stripes with these kind of crazy jagged stripes on them. And their sponsor is a Filipino gambling site. Uh, 40% of Premier League kits have gambling sponsors on them still, but not for much longer. Um, the club shop, Graham, sells a version without the sponsor on it for the adults. And mm. only the kids one only has no sponsor on it. I ask you, why would you buy the one with the sponsor on it? You're, you just really like Filipino gambling, I guess. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right. Uh, Last season, Bournemouth finished second in the championship, as I mentioned, going up with Fulham. They had the best defence in the league. 20 clean sheets, a league best in the championship for them. They got promoted with a game to spare. They got a win over Nottingham Forest, who also went up uh, in the penultimate game. Uh, The previous season, they got to the playoffs. They lost to Brentford, who went up last season, of course, in the playoff semifinals last season. So they've been in and around the action trying to get back to the Premier League for a couple seasons now. Uh, Last season, Scott Parker... um, was the coach all year long. Um, you may remember he promoted Fulham last season and now he's with Bournemouth. So he's going to be trying to stay with one team for longer than a season this He's year. the new Neil Warnock. Yeah, indeed, yes. He just catapults teams up. Let's see if he stays up in the Premier League for longer than a season, Graham. Um, in terms of his style... A bit conservative, as I mentioned, uh, best defense in the league last season. Some have said he might have; they might have won the championship if he didn't kind of sit on leads and be a bit conservative. The team is very defensive, as I say. Sometimes they sit back a bit instead of going for it. It's a four-two-three-one, which um, Parker will generally use. Dominic Solanke is the man up top, the striker up top, formerly of Liverpool and Chelsea, of course. Uh, often they'll have Philip Billing as a number ten. Jefferson Lerma's in there. Lewis Cook in front of the defense. You'll uh, note, remember a lot of these players from their Premier League campaign 
a lot of this team is, uh, or the core of it, is the team that was in the Premier League previously. Uh, the key man, as I mentioned there, was Dominic Solanke. Not so hot in the Premier League with his last stint. Three goals in 18 months in the Premier League, although you could argue he had kind of a bit part role. He's certainly more of a prominent figure this uh, in this Bournemouth team. Uh, last season in the Championship, 29 goals and seven assists did Solanke get. So they very much rely on him. Um, in terms of transfers in they haven't spent a ton of money ryan fredericks has come in as a potential left back from west ham uh they've got a lot of welsh players uh, when we look at the world cup intersecting this uh premier league season Kiefer moore chris meppen and david brooks who's now cancer free we're delighted to say um they will should be with wales at the world cup otherwise not too much international duty interrupting their season it's a tough one for bournemouth their first fixtures after getting villa at home man city away arsenal at home liverpool away it gets a bit ouch. easier. Yeah, ouch indeed, Graham. It, it looks like they might not get points until September. So a rough start, but hey, everybody's got to play everybody. It's all even in the end. My very specific prediction for Bournemouth, and I'm going to also avoid the uh, Burnley-esque pretending every team is good. My specific prediction is they're going to finish 20th. They're going to finish bottom. <laughs> and I'll couple that with Solanke getting fewer than 15 goals in this campaign. I don't think they're going to embarrass themselves. They're not going to be like Derby when they got nine points or whatever it was. But as I mentioned, they're relying on a core of players who struggled last time out. They've not spent very much to reinforce. And I know it's, it's dangerous for a promoted club to spend a ton of money because that can go the other way as well. But they, I don't think they spent quite enough. And Solanke, who they really, really need to deliver at this level um, hasn't done so far and I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced he's going to uh, you know, um, make a Bournemouth season. I think that at least likely of the promoted clubs to stay up and as I say 20th is where I, I'm, I'm very sorry to say it Bournemouth fans, but I think that's probably where they're going to be. I'm, uh, sh I'm sure that the Bournemouth fans will be delighted to hear your prediction. They're not going to be as bad as Derby County, no. the worst team in Premier League history. That's where you're setting the bar no, of okay. this, for this Bournemouth team. Let me set it at Norwich <laughs> then. I think they'll do. They'll perform better than Norwich in, in, the okay. last, in the, their last one up. Uh, let's let's say that. Um, unless there's any more on Bournemouth, Tate, oh, I'll man. hand it over to Brentford for you. Uh, no, other than just like for 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 fans listening, Bournemouth fans listening, you're gonna be better than Norwich. Get excited! <laughs> Not quite the season Woo! preview I think they're probably hoping for. Sorry. Yeah, let's let's talk Brentford though. Uh, first of all, as has already been pointed out, I tend to be optimistic with these season previews because you know it's a time of rejuvenation, of rebirth, and and I do think Brentford will continue to be just as good as they were last season. There are some concerns though, uh, but I am. Pretty optimistic for Brentford, who finished 13th last season, uh, which is no small feat, given that they were uh, a promoted team. Not a ton expected of them, but under Thomas Frank, uh, they had a number of successes, able to stay up and do so very comfortably. How they were able to do that, I would say there are three primary factors. Number one is that Ivan Tony is very, very good. 12 goals in his debut season. He is attracting a lot of interest, but uh, has three years left on his deal. The club don't want to sell, so it would take a very, very large amount of money for him to move. So it seems like he will still be with Brentford, and that is very good. Christian Eriksen is not with Brentford any anymore, and that is very bad if you are a Brentford fan. He came in in January, one goal and four assists, but very much involved in the attacking play, very much a, a creative player in midfield that they didn't really have, and 
don't quite have still. Uh, but we're going to talk more about how they'll deal with that absence in a second. And the other way that they've been able to be successful, strangely, is by getting rid of their academy in 2016, which was a controversial decision at the time. They didn't feel like it was worth the money, especially when they kept having uh, players stolen by larger clubs, uh, because at the time they weren't a Premier League club. They weren't even really a Premier League hopeful. So they went with a B-team model, and that has been very successful for them. They basically poach rejected players from other clubs' academies and then try to train them up and see how it goes. But they will be reopening that academy. They're starting that this season with a, a, guy, a goal of getting to a like Tier 1 academy within the next, I think, four seasons, uh, if not sooner. But that is because they are looking to be an established Premier League team. Obviously, everyone is, but their goal, their planning, is with an eye towards being there long term. So they feel like they'll be able to keep youth products, keep them happy, keep them involved, and keep bringing them through and then selling them on if they have to. Um, But in the meantime, I think they're feeling pretty optimistic about this season. Thomas Frank's still there. They'll still be playing a 4-3-3. It's likely to still be that front uh, attacking three that worked for them last year in uh, Yohan Visa, uh, Brian Mbuemo, and then the aforementioned Yvonne Tony, but they have made some additions, uh, namely Keen Lewis Potter, 21-year-old attacker from Hull City. They signed him for about $20 million. He can play on the left wing or the right wing. I don't know if he will start. I do think he will sometimes play centrally, and that gets to my prediction in just a second. Uh, other additions would be Aaron Hickey, who I asked uh, Graham Ruthven about, uh, Scotland International, who... Different Brentford sites have referred to as the right back they need and the left back they need. So that could be a problem for them if he's doing uh, double duty, but did get a lot of interest uh, w- uh, when he was considering his move away from Bologna, but in the end chose Brentford. And before cho- uh, joining Bologna, turned down Bayern Munich, uh, reportedly. So seems like he's prioritizing getting playing time and developing. So I think uh, Scotland fans, Graham, I'm guessing, will be pretty excited about Aaron Hickey. They've brought in Ben Mee. They've brought in Thomas Strakosha as depth at goalkeeper. But the question remains, how do you replace Christian Eriksen? And that is where my specific prediction comes in. I think Josh De Silva and Keen Lewis Potter, the aforementioned, will combine to get at least eight assists this season. Again, uh, Erickson got four in his half season there. Uh, for Josh De Silva, that's a player who's been out for almost a year uh, battling a continuous hip injury. There was a threat of retirement at one point, but he is now back fit. And though he tends to play more as a deeper defensive midfielder, some speculation that he will be given more license to get forward because he is good on the ball. He does have good passing ability. So there's an expectation that that he'll uh, help make up some of the sort of ground lost uh, when Christian Eriksen chose to depart. Uh, And then also Keen Lewis-Potter in preseason has been playing centrally at times as a substitute. And so I think those two, what I think we'll end up doing, unless they can find another world-class midfielder to come in and create, I think they'll look to change the structure a little bit based on the opponent and then get different personnel in there and get more numbers forward to sort of make up for that uh, playmaker not being there anymore. So Josh De Silva, I think will have a bounce back season. Uh, a very strong season at that. Keen Lewis Potter, I think, will have a great debut season for Brentford, and they will combine to get at least eight assists. Keen Lewis Potter is my favorite name in the world, Taylor. That is it all. really, it's one of those, it's up there with Kingsley Coleman as a, as a name that was made for Harry Potter. But Keen Lewis Potter, I guess, will have to, I mean, I guess the Potter part of that is pretty, I, pretty self-explanatory. I, I also like Kieran Jewsbury Hall, which is, I'm pretty sure that's where I got married, Jewsbury Hall. <laughs> 
I have a I have a question that like could take us down some shaky shaky terrain. Uh, Daryl, uh, his second reference of the show. Uh, I was asking him once about why there are so many hyphenated names, and I'm sure there are many reasons for this. But one thing he was saying is that a lot of players, a lot of people in England, I guess, like the marriage rates are lower, so you're getting more people who just sort of uh, ha- have a kid, even if they're not married, they just name him the hyphenated name because that's the easiest way to do it. Does that vibe with what you all have experienced, or is it just a myriad of reasons why that might be the case? That I believe. T- Taylor is the principal reason. It used to be an aristocracy thing to do, and now it's mm-hmm. more uh, the, the marriage rate factor. Yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting, interesting, interesting. And Harry Potter benefits. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Keen Lewis Potter, presumably uh, parents big fans of soft um, rock, can we call Keen? I don't know if we can call them that. But all the same. Uh, Taylor, thank you very much for that summary of Brentford. We're going to take yes, a sir. quick break. When we come back, Brighton and Hove Albion. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Brighton and Hove Albion, a top 10 finish last season. The best in their history, ninth. Mm, a tough act to follow, Graham Ruthven. Indeed. Last season was a, a very successful one for Brighton. As you say, they finished in the top half of the, of the Premier League table, ninth. And the, the true mark of how successful last season was for Brighton is that ninth actually, by the end of the season, felt a little bit underwhelming, given that they where they were for much of the campaign. There was a point fairly on, admittedly, where people were discussing whether they could qualify for, for European football. That's how well they were doing. Graham Potter has received a lot of praise for the attractive, dynamic style of play he's he's put in place at Brighton yes. over the last two seasons. And Joseph Ann, and last season was proof. So in the first season, he got a lot of that praise, but there were questions over whether it would actually produce results. I think last season was the evidence that it can produce results because Brighton took points off Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea, Tottenham, Manchester United, Man City were the only members of the, the the big six that Brighton didn't earn at least one result against last season. And Pep Guardiola gave Bright, uh, Grim Potter a lot of credit after uh, Manchester City absolutely thumped Brighton in one match. So that's pretty much as good as a win as getting uh, some praise off uh, Pep Guardiola. Unfortunately... I'd be surprised if Brighton were able to match this success this season. They've, they've lost Yves Basuma to, to Spurs this summer. He was just such an important player for, for Potter. He brought so much to that Brighton midfield. He will not be easy to replace, although Moises Caicedo is, is highly thought of at the Amex. Amex and he'll probably be the one that's introduced into the, the first team as Basuma's replacement. At the time of recording, Mark Cucurella is still a Brighton player, but it feels like that will also not be the case for much longer. Man City have been chasing him all summer. The latest, though, is it's actually Chelsea who are leading the, the, the race to sign him. So he would be another big loss, another big player that, that, that Brighton seemed destined to lose. It's no surprise that clubs like City and Chelsea want him. That's kind of a mark of how 
good he is. There is still a, a core group of good players there. Uh, Leandro Trossard seems to be getting better and better. Alexis, Alexis McAllister, Pascal Gross, Lewis Dunk, they're all still there. But th this is where Brighton and Potter in particular could become a victim of his own success because when you finish ninth in a, in a season, people can't resist the temptation to talk about taking those next, next steps towards European football because it's so close. But Brighton's ceiling, I suspect, might kind of be ninth, kind, might be ninth at the moment, particularly with losing those players. And uh, all of a sudden, if, if Brighton finish there again, even if they match that achievement, people will paint that as them standing still. So I... I fear for them a, a little bit this season. Potter is Brighton's greatest asset and he might come up with the answers and keep Brighton moving forward because he's a very good coach, but his squad is light on depth and they still haven't been able to find a reliable goal scorer. Neil Mope, he finished their top scorer last season with just nine goals and that has been their biggest deficiency since Potter took over. I know good goal scorers, goal scorers are hard to find, especially ones who share their responsibility in other areas of the game as Potter would want from a number nine, but it is surprising to me at this point that Brighton haven't taken some of that Basuma money or even the Ben White money from last season and, and put it on a designated penalty box finisher. Um, they have made some additions this season, so... Um, only only twenty million pounds has actually been spent on transfers, but most of that has gone on uh, Julio and Saiso from Libertad in, in, in South America. I can't say he's a player I'm familiar with, but Brighton have had a lot of success in scouting and recruiting from that part of the world. So maybe he is the the, the next first team player to be sourced from that from uh, from that area. The only other addition is a left winger called Simon Ad Adringa, who has already been loaned out to Belgium. So in terms of personnel, I think Brighton are weaker this season than they were last season as I say Potter maybe comes up with the answers I think a factor in a lot of the transfer decisions that have been made at Brighton this season has been the departure of Dan Ashworth as, as the sporting director he was widely credited with turning Brighton into one of the most modern forward-thinking clubs in the Premier League he also held a very important role with the FA for a long time so a lot of the success you're seeing with the, the FA particularly with the men's team and the youth teams He's credited with a lot of that. He has he left the club last season to take over at Newcastle United as their new sporting director. And I think that might have shaken Brighton's transfer strategy a little bit. It has been a quiet summer for them in terms of incomings. It feels like they're trying to find their, 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 their strategy, their transfer policy again. And maybe the final month of the window will be slightly busier for them. My uh, my very, time for my very specific prediction. Obviously, when you think of Brighton, you think of their excellent use of possession and the way they like to control games through the ball. So my VSP is related to this. It is that Brighton will finish in the top five for average possession share in the Premier League this season. They finished fourth last season ahead of Manchester United. I think with Ten Hag coming into Manchester United, they might leapfrog Brighton, but I don't expect them to fall too far. So I'm saying top five per, for possession share, but maybe fortunate to finish in the in the top ten of the actual table. Graham, I think that's just a, a really, really well-framed preview. I, I love Brighton, I think, more than a lot of other folks do. I think they are an incredibly fun team to watch under Graham Potter, who I think is the best British coach in the world right now. Or, or one of them, certainly. I think he's the best British coach in the Premier League right now, at the very least. He's a really good manager, and he's done a lot of good things with this squad. But the talent is is not at the same place it was last year, which should temper expectations. I'm curious to see, do we see some movement from them before the transfer window closes? What does a winner look like? As the squad is built now, I have a hard time imagining them pushing any further. But I don't know. You never know. I guess Potter, like you said, Potter could come up with something great. Either way, I think that was really well said. Joe, you, you love yourself some Potter, don't you? 
I do. Well, I mean, we were talking about Harry Potter before, so why not Graham Potter now, you know? <laughs> Keen Lewis Potters, Graham Potters. There are Potters everywhere in this podcast. And Graham, um, congratulations. I gave you five minutes. That was four minutes 59 you just did on Brighton. You should be very proud of yourself. Well done. I, I might I might have my own stopwatch going <laughs> in the background here. <laughs> Cheek. All right, Joe Lowry, see how you can do on timing when you give us the lowdown on Chelsea, Chelsea. All right, so Chelsea finished third last year. They lost in the U, uh, the UEFA Champions League quarterfinals as well. They were in a tier of their own, or, or maybe with Tottenham last year. There's an argument for that underneath Manchester City and Liverpool in terms of the league results. So they obviously were third, so literally underneath them in that next tier in terms of results. But they were also third in the league in goal difference with plus 43, which is a, a good number, and third in goals with 75 goals scored last year. A little bit of a disappointment coming off of their Champions League win the year before. Um, maybe riding that momentum in a pretty strong squad with Lukaku coming in last year and just a lot of, of excitement around that team. But they didn't really get it done. So third is, is a fine finish, and, and realistically, I don't see them aiming much higher than that this year. I think third would be a successful season for them. Much of the, much of the Chelsea talk last year, and for a while now, has revolved around two things. The first thing is Romelu Lukaku. And the second thing is Roman Abramovich and generally the the ownership state of the club. With that first item, Lukaku is gone. So he's off to Inter on loan. He had that interview midway through last season where he talked about Inter and then maybe some of it was taken out of context and who knows what happened. Either way, Lukaku is gone and Roman Abramovich is gone too. He was forced to sell Chelsea due to sanctions after Russia's war in Ukraine. He sold the club for 2.5 billion pounds, which is the most ever uh, the, the largest amount ever sold for a sports team, according to the Associated Press. The club was purchased by American uh, owner Todd Bowley. So that's the ownership state of the club right now. They didn't end up being in really any sort of long-term financial bind with Abramovich and, and all the questions that were around him for a while. That sort of seems to be a little bit of a moot point at this point with Bowley coming in. So in terms of style, Thomas Tuchel's a manager. We know a lot about him. He wants to smother you with possession. Uh, they were at 62.3% last year, just behind Liverpool, and 6% behind City, 8% more than Brighton. So again, in that that real top tier in terms of possession. Uh, they were the, the, the just a really possession-oriented team. They also love to press. They're one of the most high-pressing teams in the league, fourth in attacking third pressures, uh, according to FBREF in the Premier League last season. Key players within that tactical framework, you're looking at Mason Mount, who was our top scorer in the Premier League uh, last season with 11 goals. He was the only Chelsea player to hit double digits in the Premier League. With Lukaku gone, I think Kai Havertz is going to be key this year, more so than he's been in the past for Chelsea. And he could play alongside, or he's one of another uh, small group of players who could play up in the middle of the field. And I'll talk more about one of those new signings in just a second. I'm curious about how much we see of Connor Gallagher this year. 22-year-old English central midfielder. Played a bunch and had a really great year with Patrick Vieira at Crystal Palace last year on loan from Chelsea. He's back now. And in an aging Chelsea midfield, Jorginho's 30, Conte's 31, there should be minutes for Gallagher. There should also be minutes for Ruben Loftus-Cheek if he's still around. I've read some reports that he's maybe being used as a not a trade piece, but really a bargaining chip. It might be included in a deal for a defender, um, which Chelsea's still sort of needing. In terms of transfer activity, Lukaku's gone. I mentioned that he's back to Inter. Uh, Rudiger is over at Real Madrid now, and Christensen is over at Barcelona. So Andres Christensen and Anton Rudiger are both gone. That's a big hole in the middle of the back line. So they brought in Kaladu Koulibaly, to sort of fill that gap. Um, I, I wonder how the rest of the back line shapes up from here. They're in talks with Mark Cucurella. Graham mentioned that just a minute ago from Brighton. He's mostly played on the left side, but can also play centrally a little bit too. 
So there's still likely going to be another move there. They were in for Jules Conde, but didn't get him. Barcelona instead swooped in and signed him. So there's room for another center back in the squad. They probably need another center back in the squad. That other option I mentioned up top, though, earlier is Raheem Sterling, who we've talked about plenty. A lot of folks know him at this point. I don't need to dive in too deep into his game. But I'm curious to see where he's going to play. Is he a, a 9? I think he's more likely to be out on the wing. But how does Tuchel balance all the quality wingers he has? It'll be a, a strange look at times up front for Chelsea. But I think they'll still be excellent this year. My prediction, when you think about the players coming in and the players coming out, my very specific prediction for Chelsea this year is that they'll finish with the exact same number of points this year as they did last year. Right? I mean, do any of us really think anybody is prepared to challenge Liverpool or City? And I, as I said, that maybe that happens this year. But it just doesn't feel like that's all that likely. And I don't really think that maybe other than Tottenham, that any of the other teams that could realistically finish in the top four, the top six, are really in a position to pass Chelsea. So I think it's City or Liverpool's title to win. I still think Chelsea's in that next tier underneath them. I don't think the squad has vastly improved. I don't think it's gotten that much worse either. I'm thinking 74 points again for Thomas Tuchel and Chelsea this year. Joe, what does this season look like for Christian Pulisic, given Raheem Sterling come into that squad? I'd be a, l- a little bit worried if I was him that Sterling has has come in and will fill a position that he'd like to think is his and maybe his game time might be affected. I, I hope it is, Graham. From a U.S. men's national team perspective, I hope Raheem Sterling plays a lot of soccer between now and November 20, whatever it's going to be, where the U.S. takes on Wales. I mean... I think realistically Pulisic is still a a borderline starter rotation player. He's right in the middle. He's not going to get minutes every single game. He's not going to be an every game starter for Chelsea or Thomas Tuchel. There's too much depth on the wing. and I don't think he's at that level at the moment. But he's also going to get real minutes for them. And I don't think Raheem Sterling necessarily changes that. If I'm Greg Baralter, though, and I'm seeing Weston McKinney dislocate his shoulder and missing real time, hopefully not needing surgery, and I'm seeing other players get up and running, Gio Reyna maybe playing, and, and we know that he's extremely injury-prone, Christian Pulisic is also pretty injury-prone. So I think there's a real argument from a U.S. men's national team perspective to, to sort of hope that Sterling eats up a lot of those minutes. I think there's a chance that that happens to an extent, but uh, I would still expect Pulisic to play a pretty similar role in a pretty similar number of minutes in 22-23 as he did last season. Well, basically what you're saying is you want um, Christian Pulisic to have a, uh, the same season that Gareth Bale had in his final year at Real Madrid, <laughs> yeah. where he yeah, he plays when he fancies it, but other than that, just plays some golfs and uh, some golf and, and rests up for international duty. Yep, that is exactly right, Graham. Wonderful stuff. Thank you very much, Joseph. That is Chelsea. And by the way, listener, sometimes, very occasionally, you might hear like one of Taylor's dogs on the uh, on the podcast or some background noise. Uh, I apologize if you could hear an actual rooster going off in the background of my recording. <laughs> uh, there's a rooster next door to where I'm recording, and it is confused because it is nearly 8 p.m. local where I'm recording. I, I don't know what's happening, but I apologize if you can hear that. But I am, in the meantime, going to talk to you about Crystal Palace, their 10th season in the Premier League uh, consecutively, their longest stay in the top flight uh perennial mid-table finishes are crystal palace it seems very much part of the furniture for the past decade in the premier league now i covered crystal palace in the season preview last year my very specific prediction was that patrick vieira would win the sack race in the week of december (laughs) 19th he didn't he didn't do that Uh, in fact he did very very well indeed i was completely wrong about palace uh, last year to take that uh, with a pinch of salt whatever i say about them this year they did uh, very well of course 12th in uh, uh, 12th in the league last year they got as high as ninth in week 30 when they beat arsenal 3-0 they also beat man united they took four points off manchester city you might remember they won at the etihad uh, early last season they also beat tottenham 3-0 they got to the fa cup semi-finals as well where they lost to aforementioned chelsea so yeah i think you can say i underestimate 
appreciated Patrick Vieira last season. Uh, and by the way, his assistant at Man City, NYCFC and Nice is Christian Latanzio, who is now Charlotte FC head coach. And there it is. Vieira- who yeah, had who had around forty minutes in the pool? Who had around forty minutes in the pool? Who was it? Well, my point being, Joseph, that uh, Vieira is doing okay without his assistant. Uh, it certainly did in the past season. Uh, <laughs> Palace, oh, that, that was that wasn't tenuous. That was fine. Okay, uh, all right, <laughs> all right yeah. oh my God. definitely. <laughs> we really between Ryan re- mentioning the random places that he's recording and sh- uh, references to Wimbledon and Charlotte, we should place bets before every single recording session and not. <laughs> Let Ryan know what we've bet. Very well. I shall continue with Crystal Palace, <laughs> who have reinforced with Birmingham, Alabama's, Alabama's Chris Richards uh, from Bayern Munich, of course. Uh, no major losses in the squad, but as Joe mentioned, Conor Gallagher, excuse me, his loan at Palace is up, so he's gone back to parent club Chelsea. So they are going to need to replace him in midfield. Uh, Chick DeCorey has been brought in as a defensive midfielder from Lon in the meantime. Uh, Palace had eight pre-season friendlies. I don't think I've seen any other team play more than that. They played in Australia. They played Man United, you might remember, and they played a few in London as well. They won four. They won half of their pre-season games. Uh, Patrick Vieira, as we know, changed this side from what he inherited from Roy Hodgson, certainly in terms of approach. Uh, The Hodgson side, very well drilled, quite defensive, hit teams on the break. We know this Vieira side is young, it's exciting, it's possession-based, there's attacking intensity, there's there's intensity all over the field. Uh, Vieira tends to use a 4-3-3 with uh, starman Wilf Zaha on the left of that front three. Uh, You've got Cechgoti screening the defence typically. Sometimes a 4-2-3-1 has been employed by Vieira, and if you recall in the FA Cup game against Chelsea, he went to a back three, a 3-5-2, which uh, Chris Richards might give him the freedom to do so, but didn't work out so well uh, in that FA Cup semi-final, of course. Uh, the focus is on those exciting young players. You've got Eberichi Eze, uh, Michael Alise and Mark Gehi, all very valuable young additions to this squad. Uh, Will Zaha had his best return last season in the Premier League, 14 goals last year. He's got one year left on his contract, so we could see him walk for free at the end of the season. We could see Palace uh, trying to keep him on a new contract. But it's Ezzy who's the one I'm going to be looking out for in midfield. He's a lot of fun to watch. He has promised in the media to fill Conor Gallagher's boots or the shaped hole that Conor Gallagher has left in midfield. So we'll see about that. Uh, some positives for Palace. Uh, not too many players going to the World Cup. They've got Jordan Ayew for Ghana. Possibly Chris Richards, I suppose, for the USMNT as well. But they do have uh, unity in the squad. They've got a fairly deep squad. And it's clear that everyone has been buying Vieira's message. The message that I did not receive last season, evidently. My very specific prediction for Palace is that they're going to take points from all the big six teams. I think Graham mentioned that Brighton had form for this kind of behaviour and Palace did last season, as I mentioned. Uh, as I mentioned, they beat Spurs, Man City, Arsenal, Man United. Uh, they str- uh, they didn't get any points against Liverpool, but I think they're going to complete the big six uh, in terms of taking at least a point from all of them because they just seem geared to snatch points from bigger, more expansive sides. Uh, something in the Vieira magic there. So that is my summary of Crystal Palace. Taylor, anything to add, or shall we uh, take a break and come to your team? Who you're gonna I have add? one thing to add, which is that I think it was a slight stumble, and I'm not trying to call you out on it, but you're referring to Chris Richards as uh, mentioning where he's from. I think you stumbled into him being now called the Birmingham Alaba, and that is what I will be calling him. <laughs> uh, Chris Richards is the Birmingham Alaba, and I think that's what we should go with from now on. Yeah, you thought it was a stumble. It was extremely clever, Taylor. It really was. It really was. <laughs> I'm into it. I like it a lot. As are all my many stumbles on this podcast day day there's, oh, there's do not co-sign do not co-sign on that 
Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, Tate is going to tell us about Everton. Back shortly. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Well, luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our Premier League preview. Taylor Rockwell, Everton, Frank Lampard. They done an escape last year. They got humbled by Minnesota in preseason. How's it going to go for the Toffees? I don't know. That's my preview. (laughs) I'm very confused by Everton. Uh, We get accused of never talking about certain clubs or only talking about them in negative ways. Newcastle would be one of those. Uh, I would say Fulham somehow is one of those. And I'm going to say Everton we tend to get accused of ignoring. I'm not going to do that, but I am going to be slightly down on them. Because the reading I was doing, I was reading some some fan posts, some, some fan blogs. There was a lot of optimism and I was sort of going to reflect that. And then I listened to two different season previews by Everton fans, all of which suggested that uh, things might not be so much better. And that is kind of where I am with Everton, is that for every positive, there seems to be a negative. And that's what I'm going to lead. I have two predictions for them. I will lead with my first one, which is that if Everton is not uh, outside of the like bottom five by the World Cup break, they will not get outside the bottom five. And I think... A 16th place finish, as strange as it is to say when we're talking about a club of Everton size and stature, that feels like it's on the cards again. Because looking at how things have gone, starting with last season, Carlo Ancelotti leaves, in comes Rafa Benitez, out goes Rafa Benitez, in comes Frank Lampard, who does a very good job of keeping them up. One of the questions I had is, will we see Duncan Ferguson in charge this season? We've seen him twice in the last couple seasons. Uh, I don't think we will, though, because I think Frank Lampard is so popular, less popular are the people above him at Everton. And that remains the case, especially when it comes to the owner of Farad Mashiri. Very much not the most popular figure at the club. And that is largely because of what's happened in the past, obviously, but what continues to happen now. Frank Lampard at the end of the season said, we need a statement transfer window. We need to make an impact. We want to make a statement. And the statement so so far seems to be, maybe we'll be good. We'll see what happens down the road. Because they've sold Richarlison. That's uh, a pretty big loss. They have uh, recouped a, a pretty sizable chunk of change there, over $60 million for him as he moves to Spurs. But then you look at the activity they have done. They signed Dwight McNeil. That's good. They signed uh, James Tarkarski, Tarkowski excuse me, on a free. And they've brought in Ruben uh, Vinagre on loan. McNeil will start. Tarkowski will start. But there are still many issues with this squad, such that one of the previews I read, when it kind of laid out the ideal starting 11, I had to message Graham and ask, how does this work? Because <laughs> I think the shape was a 5-1-4, and there were three left wingers included in there. And that sort of spells the problems that we have with Everton right now. Innovative. What's that? 
Innovative. Yeah, right? I mean, you never know. Maybe it could work. Put three left wingers in there, crowd them all on one side. Uh, you have to assume the defense won't know how to handle that one. Quite the overload. Uh, <laughs> Taylor, but- Taylor, three left wingers. That sounds very woke. Hey, there you go. Hey, see? Okay. Uh, I mean, yes. Not if, not if Frank Lampard's in charge, to be <laughs> Very <fair>. true. <laughs> and not if they're going to re-sign Adrisa Ganagay, which is also <laughs> a thing that is on the cards that will make their midfield better. Uh, he is... Uh, it seems likely to come back from PSG, the 32-year-old midfielder. Uh, I do enjoy that in their way of answering the question, how do we replace Idrissa Ganage? The answer is we sign him back because Alan did not work. Gabamon did not work. Uh, Fabian Delph, who has now uh, been let go, also did not work. So the midfield spine is, I think, the, the major issue for me because if it's not going to be Alan or Gabamon, uh, it's basically Ducore, Davies, and then maybe Ghana if he comes in. Maybe it's a Wobi playing centrally. That is a thing that happened last season. Graham, thank you for that tip. Um, but I, I think Everton basically will need to hit the ground running because there are so many potential issues here and things that could go wrong that like if they're able to to get some good results and be in the maybe top half or even just like 12th by the time that World Cup break happens, I think that is very much a positive, very much seen as a, as a success. And then I think you kind of keep going from there. Things, I guess spiral is the wrong way to put it, but build in a in a positive direction. But if things are negative, it's harder for me to see them getting out of it because there are so many things that could then easily spiral. And that's where I think if they're not uh, like basically outside of the, the bottom five, I think that's where they will stay. But there is reason for optimism, as I said. I think Tarkowski is, is a great signing. I think he is going to make that defense so much stronger than it was last season. I think Dwight McNeil is a really, really smart signing, both of them coming from Burnley, uh, relegated Burnley, so it's not like they're massive coups, but McNeil is already scoring in preseason, I think brings a bit of steel to the attack, but also a bit of trickery and guile and just cleverness and ability to create. Uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin would be expected to start, but he's picked up an injury, so he'll miss at least the opener. Uh, Solomon Rondon is suspended for that opener, so it means Deli Ali may be starting as their sort of false nine center forward. And again, this is how it goes. Every area that seems like it's a strength, there is very quickly also a potential weakness for Everton. And so it's about how they're able to sort of get things going in a positive way and then keep that momentum. I think adding uh, Patterson to the the defense will make them stronger. Graham, I'm guessing that one makes you happy. I think he and Mikolenko uh, can do a lot in terms of their attacking play, and I think Lampard sticking with a back three slash back five will also help them deal with some of that relative midfield weakness. I would expect them to strengthen before the window closes in that area. Specifically, Ganage not yet official. I would expect that one to get done. And if they bring in a couple more players, then I think things will be positive. Ultimately, as I bring this to a close, I will just say My other prediction is that I think James Tarkowski, I'm really excited for what he brings to Everton. I think he will be very good for them. And I think at the end of the year, he will be their player of the season. So if Everton is not uh, outside of the bottom five by the World Cup break, then they're staying there. And my other prediction would be James Tarkowski will be their player of the season. Good stuff, Tater. You went to nearly six minutes, but I'll allow it this time, Councillor. I apologize. Um, one thing I wanted to mention about Dele Alli, I don't know if you guys saw um, Everton play Dynamo Kiev in a preseason game a couple of days ago as we record. Um, there was a late penalty, which um, they brought on a fan, an Everton oh, fan, yeah. um, who had yep. helped uh, bring resources to Ukraine during during the conflict and has done wonderful things. He was an Everton fan and they did a really nice thing and substituted him on to take a penalty against uh, Dynamo Kiev, which he scored as well. Um, but they brought Dele Alli off 
for this rotund man mm-hmm. in his 50s. <laughs> does that do good for his psyche? Going into a season, Taylor? I'm not sure. No, it does not. No, it does not. And I, and like, I mean, obviously that that is. I, I've heard some podcasts talk about that. That does feel like an obvious joke. Uh, Ryan, credit to you for not actually making the obvious joke. Instead, just bringing that up as a sign of where things have gone for Dele Ali. At least he's still there. Donny Van de Beek uh, sent back to Manchester United. So hopefully, I predicted a while ago that I thought this would be a really smart move for him. It was it was an, it was a second chance for Frank Lampard. It could be a a, a great sort of restart for Dele Ali. And I still think that. Is possible, and maybe that's how it goes. Maybe he scores a goal this weekend as a center forward, and then suddenly he's reborn, he's rejuvenated. Everton finish uh, still probably like 14th, but yeah. <laughs> uh, at least not quite in that relegation battle. You mentioned bottom five for Everton, Tater. Um, it feels like if one of the promoted teams stays up, it could be Everton who suffer as a result of that. Is that fair? It to just say? feels so. It just feels odd to say that, right? Like I, I don't fully feel comfortable saying that, even though I think there's plenty of reason for why it will be tough, why they do face an uphill battle. I mean, even looking at the signings, they've brought in people from relegated clubs. That's usually a thing that promoted teams do, and that like lower table lower in the table clubs do. And so I guess that's where Everton are. Maybe it's a reflection of their reality. It's a reflection of losing. I want to say, what's the number here? It's uh, 372 million pounds before taxes in their last three seasons. I Yikes. think that goes a long way towards explaining why they're not splashing that cash this window. But it's still just a, a very strange position for a club like Everton, yeah. who, you know, historically were right there in sixth place or seventh place, and we thought maybe they'll make top four. Does not seem likely this year. The- there's also a very expensive hole at Bramley Moor Dock that they are sinking a lot of money into, and maybe by the time that is open, they are a championship club the hey. way that they're going. That that seems to be their trajectory. I, I am concerned for Everton, not just because of the team on the pitch, which I think they have talent, but the balance isn't really there. For me, when we were talking about Taylor, that, that, that Slack chat you were referencing there, trying to work out what their midfield structure is, is difficult (laughs) at the moment I have questions about Frank Lampard as as a manager and also just the mood around the club at the moment seems on the verge of being toxic again as it was last season so I I am I am very worried for them I know we're going long but like that's Graham that's thank you for saying that first of all because that does make me feel better about what I'm saying when it comes to Everton because I do sometimes worry I'm being too harsh on them but like that that is exactly where my my prediction comes in because right now things at the very least it seems like the supporters are behind Lampard and trying to get behind this team but if things go poorly if there is some bad blood if it's just not quite where it needs to be I could see them turning on Lampard or I could see Lampard becoming less popular and then the ownership is disliked, maybe the team is disliked, maybe the manager is disliked. It's hard to see them really turning that around if there's just negativity across the board. So I, I don't really wish for that. I hope that they start strong and become this sort of captivating team to watch, but I also won't be surprised if there are some struggles and maybe we do end up seeing uh, Duncan Ferguson back in charge at some point. Oh boy. Oh boy, indeed. Uh, yep. Graham Rutherford, it is an even year. That can only mean one thing. Fulham are back in the Premier League. Yeah. Uh, champions hey. of the championship last year. Uh, are they going to do the thing we think they're going to do, Graham? Well, I know what you're thinking. We have definitely been here before. And there is indeed a rumour going around that Fulham and North City are actually the same team. They just swap shirts every season. Oh. So Fulham were promoted to the Premier League in 2018, then relegated in 2019, then promoted back to the Premier League in 2020, then relegated again in 2021. And now they have promoted, have been promoted back to the Premier League in 2022. So all, all I'm saying is that Fulham can start printing those we're going up 2024 t-shirts right now because it seems written in the stars that, that is going to, that's how things are going to pan out. I would like to bring you news of Fulham having learned their lesson after past immediate relegations, but at this point, 
I can't. There is, a, there is an extreme sense of deja vu at Craven Cottage right now. There is one very obvious new thing at Craven Cottage, and that's the new gleaming £100 million Riverside stand, which is very much out of keeping with the character of the rest of the, the stadium. I, I kind of like it, although I've read that ticket prices have been bumped up significantly as a result. Does it but have a, does it have a pool, Graham? I so I tried to Google that because that was the first thing that came to my mind as well was Fulham are going to have a pool at their new stadium I think it may have been proposed and in the end not actually built but it is very close to the river so you probably could leap from the top of the new stand just straight into the Thames and that would pretty much do do the business (laughs) I know the Jags have a pool so I wondered if that was imported we'll see anyway continue I think LAFC maybe have a small pool on the top of was that in your hospitality suite, Ryan, when you visited? I'm sure it was very, very expensive, like the parking, Graham. Let's continue. <laughs> yeah, so the ticket prices are expensive at Fulham, but contrast the investment in their new stand with the lack of investment on, on the pitch at the moment. I'm going to cut straight to the transfer acti- activity segment of this preview because that's where the juicy bit is. Fulham pretty much knew they were going up as early as February. So they should have had more time time than any other team to prepare for life in the Premier League. And yet it, it feels like they're starting the season in a, in a little bit of a mess. There is one statement signing and that's Yal Paulinha from Sporting Lisbon. He's a very good defensive midfielder. One of my favourites in football manager, by the way. And it's a bit of a coup that Fulham have managed to, to sign him. I'm surprised that he has gone to a promoted team. Sticking with the midfield, Andreas Pereira has also arrived from Manchester United. Clearly not good enough for, for Manchester United, but I, I expect we'll see him perform well at a slightly lower level. Pereira is always good value for a shot from range so I think we'll see him score this isn't my VSP but I do I do think we'll see him score at least one screamer this season the more analytical reading of this is that he offers a bit of goal threat from midfield and and, and that could be important the two other additions at this point are Kevin Mbabu from Wolfsburg and Manor Salomon on loan from Shakhtar Donetsk Salomon is an interesting one he's a, he's a dangerous attacking midfielder slash winger and someone that I've watched quite a bit of because it's the law that Scotland and Israel must play each other at least three times every year and he is he is a good player at the time of recording it's been reported that Bernd Leno the the Arsenal goalkeeper who obviously lost his place to Aaron Ramsdale last season he could also be on his way to to Fulham so that that would be a pretty solid signing but the part of the problem for Fulham is they have a team full of players who have proven they are too good for the championship but not good enough for the Premier League and chief among them is Alexandra Mitrovic who is a, a goal machine at championship level but has frequently struggled to make a mark in the Premier League. Harry Wilson is another one. He's been brilliant in the championship but has only really shown flashes of what he can do in the, in the Premier League in the past. Fabio Carvalho is, is a big loss for this Fulham team. He's left to, to join Liverpool. He's maybe one of the players that could have made that step up as well. Obviously, Liverpool are counting on him being able to do that. Nico Williams is now at Forest. He was on loan from Liverpool last season. So that's that's interesting in itself, given that Fulham fans are a little bit miffed at Forest, who are also a promoted team and finished below Fulham in the championship table. They, they, they have, uh, they've been very busy in the transfer window and have spent a lot of money. And, and Fulham's have kind of left things late and even in Marco Silva Fulham have a manager whose reputation is mixed he did a good job at Fulham uh, sorry at, at Watford then a bad job at Everton then a meh job at Watford and then he did well to get Fulham up last season and it's probably not a good sign that Silva seems concerned at what he has in his squad even if he denies he's concerned if anyone has caught Silva's press conferences this summer they've been entertaining because they'll have seen that uh, it's basically just Silva gritting his teeth and going 
I'm not angry for 30 minutes straight trying to deny that he's concerned with the squad when he very, very clearly is. It's very passive-aggressive and very entertaining at this point. To finish, my very specific prediction for Fulham is that Paulinho will finish in the top 10 for the most fouls in the Premier League this season. He's a brilliant player of what I've seen of him. A brilliant midfield enforcer, but he's got a a Fernandinho side to his game. He averaged two fouls per match in the Premier League in Portugal last season. He's not going to be a popular player for opposition teams, so make sure you pat your shin guards if you're up against Fulham this season. We call it an Oberdorf side of the game now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's called now. Uh, You mentioned the players who've left Fulham. I noticed, Graham, uh, Timmy Abraham has left. I I, I forgot that Tammy Abraham's brother is called Timmy Abraham. That's wonderful. I just wanted to add. Yeah, I mean, not much imagination in terms of names in, in that family. Certainly not as much imagination as, what was the Potter one again? I've, I've forgotten Keep what Lewis that Potter. was. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. Thank you very much for that Fulham roundup, Graham Rusman. One more team to cover on this preview. Joe Lowry, Leeds United don't have the Birmingham Alabama Alaba. Well, they do have <laughs> Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson, Jesse Marsh. There's a whole lot of freedom at Ellen Park. Tell us about it. There is much freedom. Freedom abounds uh, for Leeds United right now. They finished 17th in the last year and escaped relegation. So there's freedom in that way as well. They avoided relegation on the final day. The club was in something of a free fall under Marcelo Bielsa last year. Leeds brought in Marsh to replace him. Results weren't great under Jesse Marsh. Uh, he, He didn't do a phenomenal job. It's not like they transformed overnight after he was hired in February, but he kept them up, and that really was the job. It took them until the final day, beating Brentford, and Burnley ended up going down instead. Sorry, Taylor. So all that stuff is last season. In terms of style and how this team plays, if you've ever seen a Jesse Marsh team play soccer, maybe barring that short stint at the start of the season last year in the Bundesliga with RB Leipzig, you kind of know what you're getting from a Jesse Marsh team. And even that Leipzig team had some of that, that, that pressing style. They're going to be aggressive. They're going to press. They're going to play direct. Now, it's not a total departure. It wasn't a total departure from what we saw from Bielsa. Bielsa likes to press too. And they were really high pressing and aggressive defensively before Jesse Marsh even got there. But they pressed in much more of a man-to-man, player-to-player kind of way. Jesse Marsh doesn't really do that stuff. They usually press up out of a back four. It's been a lot of a a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-2-2-2 shape in preseason from what I've seen and what I've read. So you're looking at this idea of pressing up zonally out of a back four, stepping to a player, stepping to a man to pressure the ball, but it's not man-to-man. We are going to see a lot of direct play, which I also already mentioned, but that's a very big difference from Bielsa to Marsh. Bielsa's teams played some really fun, aesthetically pleasing possession soccer, Jesse Marsh just tries to run over teams with a dump truck and just tries to absolutely slam them down and into the ground over and over again. That is the Red Bull way that Jesse Marsh still very much represents. Key players, Rafinha was their top goal scorer last year with 11. He's gone now. Calvin Phillips was key for them in midfield, not just last year, but in previous seasons as well. He wasn't healthy all year, but he was an important player. He's gone now too. So Jack Harrison is their highest remaining goal scorer coming in from last season. He had eight goals. He is a talented player. Uh, One other key signing, I mentioned Emi Martinez back for Aston Villa, but Elon Melier, uh, Leeds United's goalkeeper, he's French, 22 years old. He was their starter last year. He was also the worst shot stopper in the Premier League based on post-shot expected goals. That's from FV Ref. He had a really poor season. And like I said with Martinez, an improved performance from from Melier would go a long way towards putting Leeds United and, and sort of getting them out of the relegation zone and, and not having them to worry, not, not them not having to worry about that all the time. So that's a key focus for me. A lot of their other key players, though, outside of Harrison and Melier, 
I think, and at least in terms of the players that I'm interested in, and I think the audience will be as well, are coming in from the transfer market. So I mentioned that Rafinha and Calvin Phillips are both gone. That's a, a nice chunk of change that Leeds now has the ability to spend. And they kind of spent some of that before even really those deals were, were firmly agreed to or before they'd had the money in their pockets for long. You're looking at Brendan Aronson coming in from RB Salzburg for $36 million. Luis Sinestera from Feyenoord for $27 million. Tyler Adams from Leipzig for 22 Rasmus Christensen from Salzburg for 14 And Mark Roca from Bayern for 13 That could be five starters for Bayern Munich with Aronson. He's been playing as a number 10, as a central attacker underneath a forward. He could start. Uh, Luis Sinistera could start on the wing. Tyler Adams and Mark Roca, I think, make a really nice double pivot in midfield with contrasting but complementary skill sets. And then you could have Christensen at fullback. So there's a lot of new blood in this team, including Jesse Marsh, who still is relatively new. It's going to take time for them to gel, and they are still at a talent disadvantage relative to I would wager two-thirds of the Premier League, at least a solid chunk, at least half of the Premier League. You could look at the squads and say, yeah, they have more talent than Leeds United. But Aronson and Adams are really strong players. They're folks that I think people who are listening to this show are going to know well. They are capable of playing at a pretty high level. And I think Mark Roca, with his technical ability, is in that group too. I haven't seen as much of the other pair of signings that Leeds brought in. But I think we're going to see a lot of them going forward. And we're going to see them do a lot of pressing. And that's my very specific prediction. This is pretty low-hanging fruit, but I'm going for it anyway because I think it will be accurate. And I'm really committed to like winning this prediction game this year. And I, I, I think I can do it. No one will press as much as Leeds United this year. They'll have the most pressures in the Premier League. That's the first half of my prediction. But the other half, which I do think is going out on a, a little more of a limb is that Leeds will stay up. I think they're going to avoid relegation. I think it's going to be close and touch and go at times, but I think they have retooled the squad enough. They brought in enough enough depth and quality in the transfer market to cover for Rafinha and to cover for Calvin Phillips. I think they're staying up, and they're going to make teams really annoyed with them when they're in their face all the time. Good stuff, Joe. They stayed up by three points last year. Do you see it being that tight? I don't think so. I I don't know for sure. Part of me, part of me is concerned with how healthy this team is. You're looking at Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson in particular. They're going to be involved in the World Cup and they're going to be playing big roles for the U.S. So there's extra minutes there. There are going to be challenges for this team. I think it should be a little safer for Leeds this year. I think it should be more than three. But it wouldn't surprise me if it was pretty close. I'm just hoping for all the Americans' sake there that it won't be quite that tight. Joe, do you feel like it's it's sort of similar to the Everton situation in which they'll either be like safe and good or it will go poorly, Jesse Marsh will be sacked, and who knows what will happen? Uh, not necessarily. I, I think both of those are outcomes. I could also just see them finishing in 15th and kind of everybody calling it a day and retooling yeah. again the next summer and right. coming back in, in in 2023 doing the same thing. I'd be fine with that. That works for me. Glad it works for you, Tata. And that <laughs> hey, as a Man United fan, for me to say I'm happy for Leeds to stay up feels weird, but uh, yeah. I am, and I think it's good. That was bold. That was bold. I appreciate that, Taylor. And I appreciate all of y'all for taking part in this Premier League preview part one. Part two, listener, will be on the feed very, very shortly if it isn't already for you. But in the meantime, Tata Rockwell, thank you very much again. Thank you, my friend. Joe Lowry, thank you, sir. Thanks, Ryan. Graham Rutherford, pleasure as always, my dear. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. I'm relieved the rooster didn't cause you too much trouble. Maybe next time you could record somewhere that isn't the set of the movie Babe as a suggestion. (laughs) Seriously, um, I'm staying in my Vardenlaw's house and the rooster goes off at like five every day. Why would you have that in your house? I do not know. I do not know. But uh, all the same, listener, thank you very much for listening with us. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, as I say. But for now, bye.
Slash it. 